0: Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My, and and oh, my name is Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 56, The Lodge, recorded on May 29th, 2023. Thanks for joining me today. Start off with a continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. You can check out his incredible albums on Spotify and Bandcamp. And today's intro is from the song Do You Want to Leave Me or Do You Want to Stay? And our outro is Maybe Days. In episode 46, Dawn... Chris recommended the movies Killer Sofa and House Shark, and I've watched them both. And House Shark was as zany, fun, and ridiculous as he said it was going to be. And Killer Sofa, guys, is just a straight-up good movie. It's also ridiculous, but don't let that stop you from checking it out. A strong recommend. Killer Sofa. It's about a chair, not a sofa, but, but you'll get it. It's good. Corrections. Firstly, going around and just being abjectly wrong about things in front of everyone is not the right way to populate the corrections I put in each episode. Like, it's not fair to frustrate and perturb everyone with incorrect statements. So, um, I have something to apologize for, uh, in this bit here. Uh, but that's been unendingly frustrating with everyone in my life. So I'm sorry about, about that. I was repeatedly mistaken when trying to find the correct exit to enter the Yorkdale mall. Damn thing is near impossible to access if you miss the exit. Uh, I could get near the mall... I had no trouble driving all around the Yorkdale Mall, but entering the mall was not so easy. So uh, plan your route, folks. And I was positive that I was going to be able to observe the newborn morning dove that was hatched out once it matured a little bit in the nest right by our deck. But this morning when I checked the nest, the mom and the chick were gone. And I was wrong. All I'm left with is a, a very literal empty nest syndrome now. Dinosaur news. I think I mentioned in an earlier episode that I wasn't going to do dinosaur egg news anymore because it was boring. But hey, this chapter is all about using eggs to kill velociraptors. Yes, with poison and not with boredom, but um, we're going to do egg news anyhow. I'll try and keep it exciting. So (laughs) here we go. The first article was published in the journal Peer J in July 2018 called Fossil Eggshell Cuticle Elucidates Dinosaur Nesting Ecology. Uh, it doesn't sound exciting yet. This paper presents, quote, the first direct and chemical evidence for the preservation of the cuticle layer on dinosaur eggshells, where the authors analyzed, quote, several theropod eggshells from various localities, including oviraptorid Macro Ulithus, Yaudtunensis, eggshells from the late Cretaceous deposit in Henan, Xiangji, and Guangdong in China, and Alvarez Saurid triprismatulithus eggshells from the two-medicine formation of Montana, United States, with the scanning electron microscope, electron probe microanalysis, and Raman spectro... 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 spectroscopy spectroscopy. That's a tough one, spectroscopy. Put that in a tongue twister and nobody will finish it. These investigations discovered shocking and amazing details like... It's suggested that the cuticle structure in eggshells can be traced far back to Raptor and dinosaurs and enhance their reproductive success in a warm, moderately moist habitat, such as Montana and southern China during the late Cretaceous. They may not Sound too exciting, but I guess this is cool because for the first time, these researchers were able to trace an element of the avian eggshell back to the dinosaur days. This cuticle layer atop the mineralized avian eggshell is a, quote, protective structure that prevents the egg from dehydration and microbial invasions. Some studies have also shown that this cuticle layer plays a role in, quote, modulating the reflectance of eggshells in addition to pigments. So this layer represents a, quote, crucial trait that delivers ecological signals. And that trait is now academically observed to be dinosaurian. And birds have that now. Of course, the eggs in Jurassic Park are all Millipore Plastics brand artificial eggs, so they won't have this protective cuticle layer. The ones in the wild, however, might or probably do. Our second news story today is about clutches of oviraptor eggs from a paper named Reconstruction of Oviraptor Clutches Illuminates Their Unique Nesting Biology from the journal... Acta Paleontologica Polonica, published in August 2019. Quote, despite numerous oviraptorid egg clutches uncovered from China and Mongolia, their nest architecture and clutch arrangement were rarely investigated in detail. And so the authors of this paper set to create a comprehensive reconstruction of an oviraptorid clutch based on, quote, five new oviraptorid clutches from Zhangji province in China. What did they find? A detailed examination of the new clutches reveals, quote, a partially open... Oviraptorid nest that contains three to four rings of paired eggs, more than 15 pairs total, whose blunt end points point towards the center, devoid of eggs at an angle of 35 to 40 degrees. As they reconstruct the nest, they found that it had, quote, a unique architecture unknown from extant bird clutches, implying an apomorphic nesting mode, or they built distinctly Oviraptorid nests, and other non Oviraptorids don't make these style nests. Their reconstruction of a happy and healthy over nest calls into question the other nests found in the past and suggests that their incomplete and less populated nests further support hypotheses, hypotheses? (laughs) That the earlier discovered nests were fossilized under duress. For example, it's believed that one of those nests were buried and later fossilized as a result of like a sandstorm or a flood, something like that. That's why those nests didn't look as good as these reconstructions because they were screwed up during a a terrible event. So what do these nests look like? They have the following features. The nest was a mound with a slope inclination of 35 to 40 degrees on which the eggs were leaning. Clutch architecture is highly organized. The eggs are arranged in pairs, and these pairs are themselves arranged in three to four elliptical rings with sediments interbedded in between them. The inner ring was the topographically lowest, with successive rings being eight to ten centimeters higher. Since egg distance and egg pair distance remained constant, number of eggs per ring increases outwards, The clutch has a center devoid of eggs, and the eggs were pigmented and partially exposed to the air. So, this sort of resembles like an arena seating chart, like where there's an empty space on the event floor, and then the seating around that, and then raised up a bit more seating above that, and then the third deck, etc. And then imagine all the eggs were leaning forward to peer down to the event floor, just like we would at a concert or a hockey game. Just like that. Presumably that empty center would be where the oviraptorid would sit. And then its feathers would be held over the nest, covering it up quite nicely. Like the morning doves that are gone now. Uh, but recall, these are apomorphic tests, or unique to oviraptorids, as far as anyone can tell. So this doesn't really tell us much about the dinosaur nesting, only the nesting of a particular dinosaur. And in Jurassic Park, the eggs aren't really in nests. They're on a vast, long table in the hatchery. And the wild eggshells we find... Aren't in nests in the chapter Stegosaur, and in descent, the raptors have about 14 eggs to a basket shaped nest of mud and straw. So, Oviraptorids are, of course, not in Jurassic Park, so we don't have to worry about uh, whether or not their nesting is depicted correctly or not. We're just saying, hey, um, a basket of eggs is probably not what was going on. Somebody's got to sit in the middle, right? Or at least Oviraptorids sat in the middle. All right, with the, the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. All right. I'd like to introduce our, our guest today. I, uh, I met our next guest when we were both working as part of a team that's creating a high-speed subway line connecting the Field Museum in Chicago, Illinois, with the Institute for Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology in Beijing. We were promised it was going to be a thrilling and exciting project filled with tunneling through the earth, but it turned out that it was just boring. <laughs> Thank you. Thank I you for read
1: a, I did recently, I recently read a... Um a book have you read the the broken earth series by uh, i know her last name is jemison but anyways in the in the third book there's like a journey through the center of the earth so okay. it's I, w- I won't give you any more details but it's definitely worth checking out this series series
0: i was half looking into where where points uh, connect and um most of the places in the us connect on the other side of the world to just the ocean so that doesn't doesn't work very
1: well <laughs> Mm, all this time, I've been trying to dig to China, and actually, I was just <laughs> going to pop out of the ocean.
0: Yes, it, it looked like a lot of places in China uh, connect to South America somewhere, um, but that was according to whatever I was looking at. Please, let me introduce you to Jingmei <laughs> O'Connor. Dr. Uh, Jingmei O'Connor is the Associate Curator of Fossil Reptiles at the Field Museum of Natural History and Adjunct Professor at the Institute for Vertebrate Paleopathology, and paleoanthropology at the uh, for the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Beijing, as well as the author of When Dinosaurs Conquered the Skies, which is a nonfiction book for kids and teens in the Incredible Evolution series about what birds are, where they come from, and other fascinating facts about their evolution, and also has been involved in publishing. and you, Please let me know if this sounds like it's in the ballpark. Google Scholar has one hundred and seventy nine academic papers to your name.
1: Uh, well, I think Google Scholar is like it. It does definitely include <laughs> like some abstracts and maybe some supplemental info files as um separate publications mm-hmm. i think because i as i recall it should be closer to like 140
0: oh just what <laughs> But i'm mean. not
1: but i'm not keeping track
0: <laughs> my goodness so i want everybody to know who we're talking to jingley thank you for coming on the show thank you so much
1: yeah, it's my pleasure.
0: Um, I understand. Uh, we can start with something which will be the closest thing I'll ever have had to breaking news. I understand the Field Museum just installed an astounding new dinosaur on display. Uh, what did you guys get?
1: So we have purchased a cast of Spinosaurus Egyptiacus, uh, which is, you know, I guess Jurassic Park fans, uh, you know, who listen to your podcast would recognize from, I guess, it's Jurassic Park 3. Sorry, I'm not a Jurassic Park fan myself, but it is the only uh cast of Spinosaurus in existence in the Western Hemisphere. It's the first one, sorry, in the Northern Hemisphere in North America. It's the only one in America. There's only one other cast in existence, and that's in Hong Kong. And that uh but our cast is the only one that incorporates new material of the neotype that was uncovered last November. So uh Nizar Ibrahim is still conducting acting Field work where this specimen comes from, and he's still recovering new elements. So for the time being, ours is the most scientifically accurate cast of Spinosaurus in the world, and it's beautiful. We've installed it hanging from the ceiling where we used to have these hanging gardens. So it's supposed to be kind of swimming overhead, and it's it's just really spectacular. Mm-hmm.
0: It was years ago that I visited the Field Museum, and uh, when you enter into the the gallery and come face to face with Sue. It stops you in your tracks. You kind of go around a corner and then suddenly there she is. And uh, this thing looks awesome too. It, it uh, fills up the, uh, that, that walkway. Uh, what an awesome sight. And I remember when you know I was first learning about dinosaurs, it was basically a Tyrannosaurus with a protractor on its back. And now it's so strange and so weird and so big. And, uh, and there's more coming out. So what a really cool specimen to have uh, on exhibit.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a permanent exhibit. I'm really really excited about it. Um, you know, I'm hoping maybe we can get some like underwater lighting on it or something. And you know, we're gonna have it for years, so we'll keep building off of it. And yeah, Spinosaurus is, I mean, it's one of the most popular dinosaurs amongst people interested in dinosaurs. Right? <laughs> uh, but I think that's primarily because of you know its enormous size, like from snout to the tip of its tail. It's it's bigger than T. Rex but it also has this you know dimetrodon like sail on its back so that you know isn't really present in any other known dinosaur so it really it really stands out but also from a scientific perspective there's so many features of this dinosaur that are unique compared to other theropod dinosaurs mm-hmm. that also make it really interesting to you know scientists and dinosaur enthusiasts alike so, yeah, I mean, you know, there's and it's also the most controversial dinosaur. Yes. One of the most controversial yes. dinosaurs in pop culture right now with this like raging debate uh, between the team you know, led, led by Nazari Ibrahim, uh, who's uncovering the specimen, and then a team led by uh, Paul Serino, also here in Chicago, who has uncovered other Spinosaurids like Suchomimus. And uh, yeah, you know, I keep making jokes about it and using that like that gif of um Michael Jackson eating popcorn from the <laughs> yes. video, and I'm just like, I'm just enjoying the drama. I mean, I do definitely favor the um, semi-aquatic uh, terrestrial subaqueous, sub-aqueous foraging uh, interpretation of Spinosaurus, mm-hmm. but you know, controversy is good for science, so let's see where it takes us. Mm-hmm. The
0: mount that you guys have there, the, the forearms do look like these baleen flippers, and the, the teeth are, are certainly uh, tapering down, uh, so you really get this intermediate stage in this uh return to the water that's being argued for and i think it's it's so effective as a as a curiosity or a curios when you enter in and you just want to ask more questions and inspire people to be more interested in science looking at this mount of the spinosaurus makes you go what (laughs) and uh and and effectively if a museum does nothing else it should be it should be doing that and i think this definitely does that
1: yeah you know i think that you know it's it's really important to inspire new generations of scientists and and dinosaurs are this classic uh drug you know gateway into science and uh i think spinosaurus is is really an animal that like gets people thinking Mm -hmm. i mean i don't know i don't really think the forelooms look too flipper like i mean have you seen that claw on the first digit like yeah it's like a foot long. I mean, that thing is crazy. Uh, but of course, the fo- the hand is 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 pretty poorly known for the genus Spinosaurus itself. So um, you know, who knows when we get more forelimb elements. Hopefully, the, I, I know. I think they found some figure bones on the most recent expedition. Okay. So uh, maybe they're still in the rock, and they still still new elements in the chem beds for Nizar to uncover in the future you know i've considered trying to you know beg an invitation for him but then i think about eating uh, canned tuna fish for two weeks straight i'm like yeah maybe not
0: (laughs) (laughs) no kidding so let's calibrate ourselves on a scale of one to ten one being who cares and ten being i'm pretty sure that i was actually going to become a dinosaur when i grow up to what degree did dinosaurs influence your childhood
1: Like negative five.
0: Yeah, okay. (laughs) So yeah, (laughs) you said, I mean, the Jurassic Park and the films, they have not been influential in your career. uh, And they didn't influence your your interest in paleontology, but it was rather a role model that got you into geology.
1: Yeah. You know, I didn't have really any interest in dinosaurs or any other prehistoric life until I entered college. My little brother used to collect trilobites and I guess they were you know they were cool and I had gone fossil hunting with my mom when she was doing her PhD but you know we also went mineral hunting it was just kind of like something to do and uh, yeah I, I, I more fell in love with evolution you know macro evolution through a professor named Don Prothero when taking his historical geology class so for those of you who don't know historical geology is a class that takes you from the big bang all the way to present day on planet earth right so it's the formation of the universe formation of galaxies solar systems planets and then once you get to that point you can just look at the history of earth itself and of course that involves the evolution the appearance of life approximately 1.8 billion years ago and yeah i just i found you know evolution itself to be just so fascinating so i always describe myself as an, an extinct Animal, an equal opportunity extinct animal enthusiast so you know I love all extinct organisms and I just kind of stumbled into working on dinosaurs so I'm definitely not uh, I guess one of these like traditional dinosaur I hesitate to use the word nerd even though I mean I use it as a badge of honor I call my lab <laughs> dead bird nerds but um but yeah I'm just I'm definitely not that cliche and um, you know I've nothing against it i suppose but it is it just kind of it is interesting i guess it's like you know being like a, a chicken among ducks or something mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. like there's certain there's a certain level of enthusiasm that's expected of you for things like jurassic park but to me it's more of like a, yeah. a joke a, a joke that i <laughs> you know openly uh apply you know like you know we went to dinosaur provincial park for field work last year and it was really really amazing i mean i've never Seen a place like that in my life, just fossil bones everywhere, dinosaur fossil bones everywhere. People like stacking them up in like little stone carns because they're just so common. Wow. And yeah, you know, me and my crew were definitely like singing the Jurassic Park theme songs. <laughs> I don't, and yeah, and since I've become a paleontologist who works on dinosaurs, I have started like accumulating dinosaur gear. You know, like I'm yeah. sitting in a dinosaur t shirt right now. So. <laughs> So I guess you know, like I'm slowly transitioning over into the dinosaur dark side. (laughs) Well, you
0: a lot of what you work on and have published on is really, really interesting in, in, in terms of my, I guess, exploration through dinosaurs and things like that. I was, you know, a, a really big dinosaur fan up until about 2000 when I went away to college. And then they kind of you know, weren't a priority while you're trying to, you know, get an education and get married and then raise kids and things like that. And so there was about 2015 when I, my one of my sons started getting into them. And so I started looking into what was new on dinosaurs. And so I cracked open the internet and it turns out uh, between 2000 and 2015, a lot had been discovered uh, in terms of what was new about dinosaurs. And one of the big new things that I'd never heard of was this whole new line of dinosaurs uh, called the Enantiornithines. And uh, was just fascinated with this whole new, you know, line or lineage that I'd never even dreamt of. So, you know, how did somebody who was fascinated with geology find themselves so wonderfully invested in the origins of birds and where these animals come from?
1: So enantiornithines were named, uh, the clade was first described in the early 1980s, and actually the first enantiornithine fossils were found in the 70s. So it's not uh, really, I guess that new group in terms of like only appearing in the 2000s. Like when you were leading in with like, in between 2000 and 2050, <laughs> I was like, oh, he's gonna say today Because that was a group of dinosaurs that's only described in 2002, yes. and there's only five specimens, and they're amazing and weird. But uh, yeah, and it's one you know, so it's a group of stem birds. It's, it's a radiation that occurred in parallel to that of the Ornituomorpho, which is the group of birds that includes modern birds nested within. And uh, I had as much interest in birds as I did in non-avian <laughs> dinosaurs at the time that I entered grad school, I guess, or even just yeah, my undergrad program. Because I was kind of a latecomer to the whole paleo game, I applied to a really broad diversity of different graduate programs. Like I applied to work with Bill Osich on echinoderms. I applied to work on coprolites with Karen Chin. I applied to work with um, marine reptiles, which are my my true love, with uh, Ryosuke Motani. And then I applied to USC, where I could work on birds with Luis Chiappe, or I could work on uh, Cenozoic mammals with Wang Xiaoming. And so I thought, having made the impractical decision to become a paleontologist, I would make the practical decision in which area of study I pursued. And this was me thinking that, you know, at this time, early 2000s, there is this enormous wealth of new specimens of Mesozoic birds coming out of China. And because There's such, so many new fossils, there's a lot of work to be done, so you can really establish yourself in the field. Like, if you decide to study T. rex, you know, it's pretty much all been done, and you're just going to keep rehashing it over and over again with slightly different methods, and uh, you're really not going to make a significant impact to our understanding, unless you develop some new methods, or you find a new specimen, or something, you know. But with an Enantoanathenes and Mesozoic birds more broadly, I I thought I would... uh, be able to be prolific and make a name for myself that definitely was true but mostly because I went to China where I had uh, no responsibilities other than research tons of awesome fossils tons of funding and yeah so you know people always talk about how prolific I am and I it's just really because I was in a place where I was you know had the time and the resources to be that prolific it's not that I'm somebody special it's just a I was willing to take uh, to leave my comfort zone and move to Beijing. And, you know, I've offered postdocs and, uh, you know, uh, Ph.D. programs to so many people like, come to China. we It's amazing. And pretty much everyone is like, you know, like I want a job and I'm desperate, but not that desperate. And I'm like, really? Well, then, you know, like yeah screw you then like because China is amazing it, what I mean I had such a great time there and I'm so grateful for uh the opportunities I was given I have one postdoc who came um a researcher named Dr Alita Bayol. she's now a, 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 a associate professor at the IBPP. she's still there and yeah she came she flourished she loves it she's still there and uh, I think that's just you know, we're both examples of what you can accomplish if you're willing to leave that comfort zone. And it's really a shame that most people aren't. But then you look at America and most people don't even have, you know, uh, passports. And so many people have never left the country. So I guess it's really not that surprising.
0: Mm. And so uh, I guess from your experiences and looking at all of the specimens that you get, where does the, the story of uh, the ancestry of birds begin or, or how or where is it most likely to, to have sprouted from?
1: You know, that's a good question. So the oldest fossil bird that we have is Archaeopteryx, which comes from the from southern Germany, from deposits that are about 155 to 150 million years old. But then there's dinosaurs that are considered to be very closely related to the base of birds, uh, like Anchiornis and possibly also rigids that are a little bit older. They're like 100 and 65-ish million years old, and they come from China. So, um, you know, but there's a lot of evidence that I'm accumulating with researchers in my lab that suggests that the fossil record is not sampling the actual diversification, early diversification of flying dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. So there's this question, did flight evolve in dinosaurs multiple times, or did flight evolve in dinosaurs once, right? And, uh, yeah, you know, I always found the multiple origins of dinosaur in flight hypothesis very, you know, fascinating, compelling. I thought that the difference in uh, wing structure between a scansoriopter rigid that like, has like a flying squirrel wing and that of, you know, microraptor and, and birds that have feathered wings suggested independent origins. But, um, yeah, new data, you know, is kind of, it's definitely Adding complexity and making it so, perhaps the story that I've been telling is um, is not accurate. Anyways, this data is still not published. Uh, we're working. You know, it's it's in review right now, so I don't want to say any more. But uh, but yeah, it's exciting. You know how like you can really start to you interpret the data, the data in a specific way, and then you get significant new data, and you're like, wow, wow, wow! Like mm-hmm. I didn't expect that. You know, and yeah, and and that's what I love about science. You know, the constant. Change, And I mean, that's the most important thing about science is being able to admit you're wrong and incorporate new data and ameliorate your hypotheses. But unfortunately, so many people in science are unable to do this, you know, so I always say this to young researchers who are on their, you know, just just getting started or people who are considering a, a path in science, I say, you know, it does not matter necessarily how smart you are. The most important quality that we are looking for in a scientist is the ability to say, I was wrong. Yeah, I mean, there's no shame in being wrong. Like, literally, science is a series of mistakes. <laughs> a series, like, you know, with just the data we have is so uh, especially with paleontology, Mm -hmm. but really in any field, the amount of data we have is so incomplete, uh, that of course, any er interpretation of this incomplete data is most likely going to be not 100% correct. So Mm -hmm. anyways, that's just part of, yeah, just, I would say to people just enjoy the, you know, enjoy the ride.
0: (laughs) Well, it's fascinating to think that the origin of birds, uh, dates back, you are saying 150, 165 million years, and we start getting into that early Jurassic period that's underrepresented, that there's a lot of misunderstanding or or lack of evidence of what's going on specifically in that time, but that's the time when you get your, your kind of Coelophysis-esque little dinosaurs that transform into the incredible variation of things that we have all across uh, the Mesozoic. And so there's something crazy that happened then, and to think that the bird lineage is perhaps nested in there as well is just so bizarre <laughs> what an unusual time that early jurassic must
1: yeah have. definitely
0: you have you seen the berlin specimen of the archaeopteryx
1: i have yeah i went and uh studied it i don't remember what year it was i don't remember but yeah it was um it was the only time i've ever studied a fossil and they and had somebody just sit there and stare at me the whole time i was doing it mm. <laughs> But I, but I understand it's such like a, a chaperone such a sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, they have to like, it's, it's, it's kind of like permanently attached to the exhibit. So they have to like, re- you know, bring the glass up, turn off all the alarms. And then the, the mount kind of like wheels out a little bit of okay. the display, but then it's still like, you know, you can't lift it out of this, out of the display. So you have to study it in the, in the hall with somebody uh, chaperoning you.
0: I heard that it is like paper thin. But I, yeah.
1: Well, uh, not not quite. Yeah. Okay. I mean, well, pretty yeah. thin. Though. The bones are very, very, very thin. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's insane. So you were mentioned that you didn't expect to get into birds. Perhaps you didn't expect to have to become uh, as well versed in in like feather structures and things like that. <laughs> Tell me about feathers, and and maybe you have you come to loathe them, or are they okay with you, or how does that all come together?
1: Yeah, I I mean I like feathers. Feathers okay. are cool. They're evolution is fascinating. You know, that's that's one of the reasons that uh, the fossils from China are so important, because the first feathered dinosaurs that were ever discovered come from these early Cretaceous deposits in northeastern China. And uh, the vast majority of what we know about the evolution of feathers from fossils uh, comes from these deposits. So we're able to put together a, a, you know, a hypothesis that simple feather proto feather structures which would superficially resemble mammalian fur were probably present in the common ancestor of pterosaurs and dinosaurs and there's uh and these simple uh, integumentary structures that were like monofilaments resembling fur probably evolved for the same reason as fur uh for thermoregulation because now we have strong evidence that the common ancestor uh, Pterosaurs and dinosaurs was a, a warm-blooded animal. And there's also evidence from uh this very mm-hmm. tiny basal or nithodyrin, uh, that suggests if these things were warm-blooded and they were really teeny, then they would need some kind of insulation in order to reduce the thermostatic cost of their high. Metabolic rates. So even though collagen doesn't preserve soft tissue, uh, soft tissues or any integument, we can hypothesize that it probably was covered in in these protofeathers. And then uh, protofeathers have a pretty wide distribution in the Dinosauria. I mean, as dinosaurs evolved very large body sizes, these things were secondarily lost, together with endothermy itself, because we know th- that things like stegosaurs and uh, ceratopsians uh, and and hadrosaurs as well, I'm pretty sure, secondarily evolved to be blooded but then surprisingly sauropods appear to have evolved hot bloodedness in parallel to the avian lineage so that's pretty cool but yeah but we only see complex feathers that is uh panaceous feathers feathers that resemble those that we see in living birds in um, a very narrow range of many raptorin theropod dinosaurs that is oviraptorosaurs troodontids dromaeosaurids and also birds so we call this group together penny raptora based on the shared presence of these panaceous feathers uh, but what's interesting is these panaceous feathers just appear immediately in wing-like arrangements on the forelimb. So Codipteryx is the basalmost dinosaur to preserve panaceous feathers. And it's not the oldest, but it's the most basal. And it has, you know, these little tiny wing like structures on its arms. And then like the oldest dinosaur to preserve panaceous feathers is things like Anchiornis and and other um, penny wrapped from the same deposit. And it also preserves these wing like arrangements of feathers on its arms, uh, on its hind limbs, and also along the tail. So, you know, this is kind of what suggests that the early evolution of the wing of feathers of possibly birds is not being sampled by the fossil record because you just kind of jump right in and there's just there's wings. Mm -hmm. So we don't really see the evolution of the wing itself. And um, yeah, and what's also really interesting is that you see a shift in reproductive behavior that coincides with the appearance of these panaceous feathers forming wing-like structures on pretty much all the appendages, right? Mm-hmm. So you go from dinosaurs that are burying their eggs like a crocodilian or a turtle uh, to this open nest, right, where the animal, uh, the adult is incubating the eggs, protecting them. We don't know. Uh, this also coincides with the appearance of colored eggs, which we hypothesize is for uh You know for camouflage if the eggs are buried they don't need to be colored they're not visible Mm -hmm. but yeah so it just seems that it might you know like while I have long suggested that there is an ornamental or a sexual uh sexual selection is driving the evolution of more complex feather shapes in theropod dinosaurs it's also possible that it is somehow related to this uh change in reproductive behavior because just seems that maybe it's not a coincidence that all these new characteristics appear at the same time. You know, maybe uh, maybe they're correlated. I mean, we know that open nesting and egg color and, and possibly contact incubation would have co-evolved, but maybe feathers also co-evolved as part of this reproductive strategy. Like, I don't know, just, there's so much we don't we don't know, you know, and just, so I'm just kind of quantificating here.
0: I looked into eggs once upon a time because in, in Jurassic Park, Alan Grant is supposed to have discovered more eggs than anybody up to as part of his character. And uh, a lot of the species appear to have been accredited to an ap- oviraptor-like animal. I don't know, I presume that there was lots of hadrosaur eggs found too. Do you concern yourself much with eggs? Or or do you find that like, this this nesting egg is is correlated with the uh, panoraptorin uh, animals that you're looking at?
1: I'm not definitely not an expert in eggshell microstructure. It's not something that particularly interests me. I mean, I have published on fossil eggs uh but um you know one was just like an egg expert at the ivpp asked me to collaborate and i said sure why not but uh one fossil egg that i was really excited to be able to work on uh was an egg that was preserved within the body cavity of an anti bird so we named it abmya uh because it was meaning mother bird because it's clearly was a mother bird the egg was pathological which caused the uh egg binding, which is just a, a condition in which the egg cannot be laid for various purposes. Uh, it's pretty common in pet birds that are overweight, for example. In wild birds, it does result in death. If it happens to your pet bird, you can have the egg surgically removed. Um, yeah, oh, this is kind of funny because uh, it was like, oh, uh, sometimes egg binding can occur uh, if they're, uh, due to a prolapsed cloaca. And me, being a fool, did not know what prolapsed mean meant and so i googled it and and was oh, just no. absolutely horrified by no. what i saw <laughs> no. but uh you know that's uh, that's science for you uh anyway. <laughs> hey yeah, siri no. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah, god no. hey siri is fine you don't have any pictures well i guess i guess you're if you do, it's a siri on your computer Sorry, so i was thinking silly on my home pod But anyways, yeah, that was, uh, but yeah, it was really cool. We got to see the eggshell structure. We got to, uh, I mean, it preserved like, you know, that little like skin that is in between the eggshell and the egg itself when you like boil an egg like that was preserved in the specimen uh the, the waxy cuticle on the outside of the egg was preserved and that showed that the bird was probably nesting in like a human environment because we could actually see like the aragonite crystals and their structure like you know forming this very particular structure that you also see in living birds I mean because the egg was preserved inside the body I think it like just Really protected it so that mm. the eggshell was was really really well preserved. So yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I guess if if I had a fossil egg, I would be more interested in whether or not there were embryonic bones inside and and the, and the anatomy, the skeletal anatomy of the bird. Uh, I mean, I do you know reproductive behavior is super interesting to me, but I, I don't claim to be an expert in it.
0: Okay, I guess. Uh, along the lines of the origins of flight and, and fun things with birds there was a, there was a traveling exhibit that came through toronto once upon a time and it featured a large mount of a brown and very feathered team of Deinonychuses. And it had a particularly impressive Therizinosaurus that was also had a great big brown plumage. And the exhibit was coming through around the 2000s. And it, it, I looked it up as best as I can tell. It might still be on display somewhere called Feathered Dinosaurs and the Origin of Flight. And it, uh, it wasn't just championing the, the hard work of publicizing that Dromaeosaurs were feathered, but it was also making the challenge that Deinonychus, was perhaps a grounded bird that had derived from an ancestor which had achieved flight and then further evolved into a flightless bird. Um, do you see evidence that there could be dromaeosaurs that which derived from an ancestor which was a, a an animal that which had been able to fly at a point? Does that seem like something possible?
1: So that was what I was already talking about oh, when okay. I said multiple origins of dinosaurian flight or a single origin. Because if there is a single origin of dinosaurian flight, then it means that all non volant raptorans like Deinonychus, Velociraptor, Dromaeosaurus, um, Anchiorus, that would mean they are all secondarily flightless. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and again, I, uh, you know, like the, the data is really uh, difficult to interpret. Yeah. Like stay tuned for this, this new study, which hopefully will be coming out soon. Uh, like I said, I always had favored a multiple origins hypothesis, mm-hmm. but now I'm, I'm not so sure. And um, yeah, so it, it's really exciting. You know, I know a lot of ornithologists, for example, are like, look, flight is so difficult to evolve that it is most likely it evolved once and was then secondarily lost. Mm-hmm. So ornithologists would favor a single origin of flight hypothesis. I would counter with, look how many times flight has evolved in mammals. Right. Mm-hmm. Like flying squirrels, sugar gliders. Cl- cl- what are those things called? Kalugos. Uh, bats. You know, so powered flight has only evolved once. Right. So, yeah, sure. Maybe powered flight only evolved once in dinosaurs. But I don't even think that we really th- consider that this volant, you know, ancestor, possibly volant ancestor of Penny Raptorans would have had powered flight. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, yeah. Anyways, I think like, for example, We look at the diversity of flying dinosaurs, and we don't we know we know birds have powered flight. Uh, you look at Scansoriaptor Rigids, it's most likely that they were gliding. If Microraptor represents an independent origin of flight, statistically speaking, it's most likely that it also only had gliding flight, right? So, I mean. Uh, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, devolve into an argument about semantics, like the Spinosaurus debate about what does aquatic mean. <laughs> but like, but really, here, you know, like volant, like that's why we talk about volant behavior because it encapsulates two types of flight. Okay. Because when you say flight, people technically t- tend to think of powered flight, but really, there's powered flight and gliding flight, and together they fall under the umbrella of volant abilities. So yeah, um, you know, it's. it's it's, i to me it's one of the most interesting questions uh that we try to address like that people like myself who study the dinosaur dinosaur bird transition are trying to to better understand because for a long time like when i first started grad school it was like the the research question how did birds evolve from dinosaurs or how did this one bird this one clade of dinosaurs that we call birds how does it emerge from many raptorans right because you can't say transition because birds technically still aren't dinosaurs, so it's not like they're no longer becoming dinosaurs. Anyway, sorry. And then, so how did how did birds evolve, and how did flight evolve in dinosaurs? Were essentially the same research question, but with multiple. If there is multiple origins of dinosaur flight, then they are no longer necessarily the same research question, right? Mm. And uh, yeah, so and it's really important to understand if flight evolved more than once because this has really important implications for like character trait evolution right you know whether like this the degree of homoplasy that's going on like repeated evolution of similar characteristics um, yeah so we really don't know right now i like you know a couple months ago i would have been like yes uh multiple origins of dinosaurian flight Dromaeosaurids are like you know like deionychus is not a secondarily flightless bird but now i'm not so sure but yeah so stay tuned uh <laughs> hopefully when our paper comes out you'll 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 see it
0: I was just reading something out of a National Geographic special and it was going along the lines of when you have uh, a new frontier and animals enter into it that you get um, evolution that changes the body plan uh, significantly. You get big changes. Whereas if they become comfortable in a niche and they live there for a long time, then you start getting these unusual changes. Evolutions in the in the crests or in the horns and things like that, where things get a you know they generally appear the same except where they get these ornamentations which become more fantastic. And so your ceratopsians maybe didn't enter into new uh, localities but were happy where they were, and that's why they got these incredible frills. And same with perhaps hadrosaurs, whereas maybe in the early Jurassic you get so many different shapes and things like that because they were entering into new lands kind of unmitigated after the extinction event and uh, had free reign and that's why you got this strangeness. I wonder if, if uh, you have uh, a single uh, point of, of, of flight and they're able to distribute greatly and therefore enter into these new geographies and therefore change quite a bit and, uh, and this idea, that theory anyhow, the idea that they're in a new environment and perhaps they would become secondarily flightless because there are just all kinds of different things you could do in a new environment where you're, where you're new there.
1: You know, people always ask, "Well, if flight evolved multiple times in dinosaurs, why did flight evolve so many times in dinosaurs, and in a fairly narrow range of time?" Because, like, it seems that birds and scansoraptorids appear around pretty close uh, to each other in, you know, the grand scheme of geologic time. But uh, so it's not that they suddenly were able to diversify into a new niche, because that niche was already occupied by pterosaurs. There were already very successful group of flying archosaur reptiles that uh, were utilized, yeah, that were occupying that aerial niche. So it doesn't make sense that it was a, you know, kind of like tetrapods going onto land and having this like whole mm-hmm. new ecology to adapt into. It's like, there would have been competition anyway. So. That's um, a little bit surprising, uh, but yeah, it's something that uh, we I, we really don't know, mm-hmm. you know. And it also seems that birds didn't diversify ecologically or like, I mean, they did, but not significantly until the Cenozoic, right? Like if you look at birds uh, today, there's enormous morphological, uh, and there's just such a, a huge range in form and function of the avian skeleton, but we don't really see that during the Mesozoic. I mean, you do have some adaptate. You do see a little bit. Like, for example, you have Hesperoids, which is, you know, kind of like a, a loon or a grebe. Uh, but then, and, and you have some, like, wading birds uh, and, and birds that live in trees. But it, it's really not the same ecological diversity that you see uh, today. So, again, this this, you know, the acquisition of flight did not, itself, did not result in this massive spec like speciation event that mm. happens much later mm-hmm.
0: so one of the big problems with birds being dinosaurs and dinosaurs being the ancestors for birds is that uh many many dinosaurs went extinct so i've looked into it there are three lines i've heard uh, of avian birds which have been identified to have survived the the cretaceous extinction event uh, and they're the ancestors for what we what are like ostriches uh something like groundfowl, and then our modern birds or our our songbirds and things like that, which then have diversified into a broad range of species that we have today. So I read one hypothesis. It suggested that the thing that these three lines had in common was that they were non arboreal, that they didn't rely on trees. And then after the extinction event that it's possible that their environments were all destroyed, but these ones were okay because they were able to survive on the ground. However, however, well, one survives, they they didn't get to go extinct anyhow. what are some of the things that you've heard or believe what might be reasons why some birds managed to survive the extinction
1: so it we've actually hypothesized that four lineages of modern birds of crown birds would have survived mm-hmm. and yes the, like some members of the piliognathae which yes include ostriches uh, um then one uh, some members of the galliformes and Anseriformes, which are your um, land and waterfowl and then probably um some of the earliest members of Neo-AVs, which is basically everything else, uh, would have also all survived through the end-Cretaceous mass extinction. And um, yeah, you know, the, the uh, arboreal hypothesis uh, as like basically ecology being a major filter in the selectivity of the end-Cretaceous mass extinction is a hypothesis put forth by Dan Field, who's, uh, you know, one of the scientists who I definitely respect the most in, uh, in my field him and his lab uh, do really, really amazing work. Uh, But I don't think that the answer is that simple. I think that was certainly a major factor in, you know, the extinction of enantiorethines, but... We also know that by the late Cretaceous, anantionathenes had probably achieved greater ecological diversity than in the early Cretaceous. So in the early Cretaceous, literally every anantionathene that we found is clearly an arboreal bird. But by the late Cretaceous, it seems that there would have been um, a little bit more ecolog- ecological diversity. Like there's a taxon called Elsornis that might be flightless. Uh, but again, also I, I, it's important to recognize that the late Cretaceous fossil record of birds is really bad. Like there's <laughs> just not a lot of material out there. So there's really not a lot of material to go on. Mm. Uh, But I think, uh, you know, I published a paper recently in Cretaceous Research where I hypothesized that these um, really enormous energetic demands uh, experienced by baby and anti birds was also a major factor in their extinction. So we have a bunch of baby birds from China and also some that are preserved in amber from Myanmar. And they have this really bizarre uh, molt sequence in which basically they hatch with like fully formed wings so they're capable of precocial flight like only brush turkeys, like this group called megapodes uh, are capable of today but unlike megapodes they were really tiny birds and then the, the body would have been naked so it's like like an altricial chick that is like naked but then like a super precocial chick in having wings so it's just super super bizarre and then it seems that they would have like molted their feathers all at once and so both of these things hatching basically naked and molting your feathers all at once are extremely energetically costly also having precocial flight is super costly and being a super precocial hatchling period is costly because you are 100 responsible for your own survival uh so they yeah uh you know they had these really high energetic budgets and then you throw them into an impact winter in which you have a global decrease in temperature so now the energetic cost of being an endotherm and not having insulation is further increased and you also have resource scarcity so your ability to meet your energetic demands by consuming resources is also Extremely limited. And so uh, I think that this also would have been a major factor in the extinction, at least of an anti Like we know, or like based, you know. There's a lot of science about uh, what makes animals more prone to extinction and high energetic budgets are make animals more vul- vulnerable to going extinct. So uh, we can demonstrate that an had really high energetic budgets. so that was probably also a major factor. And then there's also other things like uh, you know it's been suggested that an could not feed on detritus. That uh, you know, like feeds because they don't have a gastric mill, and that's another possibility. Mm-hmm. We have never found an anti-ornithine with a gastric mill, despite the fact we have thousands of specimens from China, and we only have like hundreds of specimens of more from China, but they preserve gastric mills, <laughs> yeah, very weird. So it seems the gastric mill is not present, but again, that's something that it's counterintuitive because a gastric mill is widely present in dinosaurs it's widely present in mesozoic birds but not in the most diverse clade of mesozoic birds so why would this diverse clade restrict itself to this narrow range of diets that do not require a gastric mill to process uh, if they're the most diverse group of birds like it just doesn't make any sense to me it's uh you know but again this is why i love paleo all this like <laughs> You know, the data doesn't make any sense and you've got to try to figure it out. And and that's the pleasure of, of trying to solve the puzzle.
0: That's something. Do you concern yourself much with fossil birds and species, which are discovered after the extinction event?
1: So I used to say, like, I used to really turn my nose down on Cenozoic birds. I was like real snobby about it. I'm like, I was like, listen, you know, I don't even like, I don't even like birds, period. (laughs) So Mesozoic birds I work on because they're weird, and uh, you know, and I want to understand bird origins. But like, I don't, I'm not interested in in modern birds and crown birds. But uh, you know, I, I guess I'm being forced to eat those words now because the Field Museum does not have a significant collection of mesozoic birds, but we have the greatest collection in the world of Green River fossil birds. So these are birds that are about 52 million years old. And uh, the Green River avi fauna is the best known avi fauna after the end Cretaceous mass extinction. So it really gives us the best opportunity to understand the crown avian radiation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I um, I'm interested, you know, and I'm I'm hoping to to you know, do some work on this really fabulous collection in the near future. And also I'll be headed out to the Green River Formation on Monday to do field work. Right
0: on. Yeah, I can only imagine that uh that whole <laughs> that whole other section, even just looking at birds, that there's an entire other field of science that it's like, how do you bring it's too many fields all at once, you know? <laughs> oh man.
1: Yeah. Well, multidisciplinary research is the future.
0: Mm-hmm. Certainly the more meaningful answers will come from from that sort of thing, won't they? Definitely. Um, So you mentioned a a bit about uh, working with amber. A big fancy part of making uh, the Jurassic Park myth seem so realistic in the novel was uh, its reliance on amber and that amber's ability to uh, be a containment pod to transport uh, ancient specimens into the present unaffected by the degradation of time. Uh, But that's proven not to be true. Um, What have you found in the amber... Uh, In particular, that's been been really useful in terms of your interpretation of the the, the map of the history of birds.
1: So, um, well, I've never actually like drilled into the amber (laughs) to actually get at the remains that are inside and to test whether or not there are uh, DNA fragments preserved. Certainly nothing codable, but, um, you know. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but you also do not need amber to have fossilized DNA. There actually is quite uh, a body of literature about DNA fossilization. And uh, and also, I, I mentioned Alita Bayol. She published a few years back a paper on these exceptionally preserved dinosaur cells uh, in like a baby hyrachosaurus, something like that. I don't like that. So out of the theropoda so I, I have no idea what i'm talking about when i when i leave theropoda but yeah so she uh, did histology and showed that the cells were so well preserved that you could actually see intracellular content also fossilized you could see the fossilized nucleus of the cell and so she applied dna specific binding stains to demineralized slides, and sure enough these stains but like bound with what appeared to be the nucleus or like so anyways we're not saying jurassic park is going to happen anytime soon or she's not saying that like i i'm not involved in this research but uh but it's definitely it, it suggests that the like components of dna are at least partially preserved mm-hmm. so you know it's a really uh it's a new emerging field i mean there has been like i think you know plant fossil dna has been published even like decades ago but uh but yeah i think you know once you know dinosaur dna of course gets people a lot more excited than plant dna sorry plant people but uh you know who so who really knows what will happen um in the future, like I think right now, there's a lot of pushback against this new research, but unfortunately, that's just what scientists do every time something new and exciting emerges. Mm-hmm. um So yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. I wouldn't be surprised though if in ten or twenty years that um looking at fossilized DNA is 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 very common in paleontology. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so with the with the Burmese amber, which I work on, and I do recognize that it's really a tragedy. The human rights violations that are happening in Myanmar, it's. Um, it's awful. I mean, it's all the human, viola- human rights violations happening all around the world, including in the United States, are all tragedies. I would say humans are just a very violent species, and, and that's the tragedy itself. But uh, I hope that by doing research on these amber specimens that we can draw awareness to this country that I think most people do not think about in their day-to-day life. And I'm also really keen to find uh, local collaborators. You know, I, I really, you know, I think it's important to, through when you work on fossils from other countries, to really help to build up the paleontological program in that country, and not just simply uh, being, you know, kind of a one-sided benefit where I get to work on these amazing fossils, and there's no, no benefit to to the country itself, country of origin. Uh, unfortunately, I have not yet been able to find a Burmese paleontologist to work with. So if anybody knows somebody working in Myanmar that would be keen to collaborate, please put them in contact with me. But uh, what I work on is just basically taking these lumps of amber, CT scanning them, and describing the skeletal morphology inside and also describing what you can see of the feathers through the amber. So really, this is the most superficial you know, treatment of these fossils. I really think that in the future, there's gonna be all sorts of crazy new information we can extract from them, but uh, we haven't figured out how right now. You know, there's just like, there's an insane amount of data in each one of these little specimens, but right now we're just, um, we're not even scratching the surface. We just put it in in a CT scanner. Uh, It would be great to scratch the surface and see what else we could find. Mm -hmm.
0: that's fascinating. Is there something you can observe in the the amber, uh, the feathers in the amber, that informs or correlates with what you see in fossil impressions of of feathers? Is there anything you can learn or- or
1: Oh yeah, tons. Because a fossil impression of a feather is not the feather itself. It's usually just the pigment bearing mono organelles that are preserved because they are more more decay resistant than the keratin matrix that actually forms the feather. So like you're just looking at a smear of melanosomes when you're looking at uh, fossil feathers from China and other places like lithic fossil feathers. But the feathers that are preserved in amber are preserved beautifully in three dimensions. And we don't know if the keratin has been altered. I mean, or, or how it's been altered, but it's like the whole feather. It's not just the melanosomes. And so and also it's preserved in 3D. So uh, it's, you know, usually when you're looking at these Chinese birds, you have like the entire plumage, which is a lot of feathers overlapping each other that like then makes it so that nothing is really discernible except where feathers are sticking out beyond other feathers. Right. So, for example, tail feathers are much are clear or like the tips of the primary feathers. But anything that's overlapping, it's just, you know, it's, an, it's just a big pile of melanosomes. So uh, there's these type of feathers that we call rachis dominated feathers that have been found in Chinese fossils and also one fossil from Brazil. And, uh, you know, there are these really weird uh, racket plume tail feathers. So they only have uh, the placious portion of the feather where there's like barbs and things There's only at the end of the t- of the feather. So you see this in like racket tailed hummingbirds or mot-mots. it's it's a, It's a pretty common morphology in living birds. But uh, when we saw the feathers for the first time in 3D in amber, we basically realized that everything we thought about those feathers or everything we'd interpreted about them from the lithic specimens was basically wrong once we could see the fossils actually, these feathers actually preserved in 3D. And, and again, this is what I love. I love, to, you know, when it turns out you're wrong. It's like, whoa, like, you know, never could have guessed that or never, yeah. I mean, and I find that, like, to be really funny to be constantly reminded of, like, you know, how how evolution is, is so much crazier than, than humans can possibly imagine. And, uh, yeah, so anyways, it turns out these feathers are, like, not hollow tubes like all other feathers are. So uh, that's really odd. And it does raise some questions about the evolution of the modern feather archetype. Like, did, you know, the hollow tube evolve later? Or uh, is this a secondary, you know, or did this evolve from a hollow tube and, and lost the hollow tube structure? Like, we really... Don't know what's going on, but um, yeah its it's exciting
0: that's cool well I, I'm glad that it makes you laugh instead of making you very upset that's <laughs> it's good to feel that way sometimes one of the things uh, I like to do with dinosaurs um, I think most people who enjoy dinosaurs like to do this too, is think about um, how they may have behaved. And I think that there's uh, this temptation when you when you consider that birds are so closely related to dinosaurs that you could somehow reverse engineer the behavior of a bird and then apply it to a theropod or, or a maniraptoran. And I wonder to what degree you would think that, what are some things that you could see that you think maybe birds are doing now that uh, you would expect dinosaurs to do? I've thought about this, and I and, and there's three big kind of differences between between these these Cretaceous animals and and modern birds. And one is teeth. Uh, that seems to be something that would perhaps change your behavior quite a bit. Uh, having fingers and hands seems like it would be a big factor in 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 what you would do in your regular day. And uh, and tails. Those seem to be things that birds don't have, and so therefore it's hard to translate a bird behavior onto a dinosaur. But uh, what what are some things that maybe birds do do? that we could envision the dinosaurs would also be doing.
1: Well, for example, I talked about the evolution of uh, like proto wings that are on the arms, legs, and also tail being possibly uh, um, ornamental structures. Mm -hmm. So it's possible uh, uh, that were, you know, evolved under sexual selection. So if that's true, then you might imagine displays like we see in pheasants, or um, you know maybe not as complex as birds of paradise, but some of the displays that we see in living birds, uh, these these mating behaviors, they may also have been present in these uh, theropod dinosaurs that also had similar feather structures. Now the problem with shows like Prehistoric Planet is that they take features that are rare among birds, mm. like gular sacs, and they stick them on dinosaurs that are extremely distantly related from birds like sauropods, or they have, you know, like in dinosaurs doing complex mating dances. It's, again, these are all things that we derive from birds. But you have to recognize, you have to think about, well, how common are these behaviors in birds? And how closely is that dinosaur really related to birds in the grand scheme of things? Uh, which is very, in the case of, case of is very, very distantly related. Mm-hmm. So I think that it is much more, it's, much, it's possible to infer some bird-like behaviors in dinosaurs closely related to birds. But um, beyond that, dinosaurs that are really distantly related, like stegosaurs, you know, like, I don't think we can really um, learn much about them from observing birds.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Here's the one that I, I want to believe in. Um, I've seen ostriches and herons and pelicans. They swallow things that are too big for their necks and their necks bulge out and they, they act like an accordion, sort of, and, they, and they, they swallow eggs and fruit, things that are just too big for them, fish, and, and, uh, and it goes down. I can see in my head, sort of, theropods who have the teeth, they don't have you know, molars to chew, so I can see them just taking up big bites and then just swallowing swallowing them whole. I can see that being something that they might do, uh, similar to what a bird does. That doesn't sound too crazy, does it?
1: Um. So, well, we know that, again, dinosaurs closely related to birds. Yeah. We have, every, like, Microraptor, we have evidence of, like, a whole lizard in its stomach. All right. So uh, it seems that it's a feeding strategy similar to many raptorial dinosaurs where they, um, you know, where they swallow follow the the animal whole of course some other reptorial dinosaurs will process it and pull off bits of the animal and uh, be a little bit more careful when they ingest but um but yeah you know I think it's we really I think paleontologists would benefit from like doing more observation of living animals to really understand organisms as incredibly complex living things mm-hmm. and because I think too often we're lost in this like made up world of what an animal is and trying to understand them from you know, like imagining what these animals would like and not really grounding it in, in observations from extinct, from living animals. Anyways, I'm so sorry, but I do need to go. Oh, gotcha. Yeah.
0: <laughs> thank you. You're right on time. Yeah,
1: thank you, thank you so really much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it was great chatting with you.
0: Thank you so much for all your insight. Good luck yeah. with everything. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Goodbye.
0: So a great big thank you to May O'Connor for coming on the show. Thank you so much. That was incredible. This week's text is The Lodge, spanning from pages 350 to 359. In a synopsis, Malcolm relates the importance of showing humility before nature as the raptors gnaw through the bars. Meanwhile, Lex and Tim escape the raptors into the nursery, sacrificing the infant raptor to the three other raptors pursuing them before being reunited with Grant and Gennaro. Grant weaponizes his knowledge of dinosaurs and the toxins in Wu's lab to defeat the three raptors before racing to the control room. Characters. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm draws each breath as if it might be his last on page 350. Watching the raptors with dull eyes. We think this may be because of the impending raptors, but it's mostly because his physical condition is life-threateningly bad. He speaks slowly through the drugs. Malcolm laments that the raptors are, quote, truly ugly. When considering Malcolm's report to Jurassic Park, which was ignored, he expressly states, it wasn't a matter of his opinion, it was the outcome of his calculations. Malcolm speaks in another allusion to the hunter who goes to the rainforest to seek food for his family, but in so doing does not seek to control nature. He accepts nature is beyond his control and understanding this He instead prays to nature, understanding he is at its mercy. Dr. Harding is here. Harding takes Malcolm's blood pressure, and his frown indicates that Malcolm is on the brink of death on page 350. Ellie Sattler, she's shivering and wet, wrapped in a towel after escaping from the pool, remember when she jumped off the roof? Upon Hammond's rhetorical invitation to consider who'd ever have thought that his park's qualities of being unfit would have put their own lives at risk, she says. Malcolm predicted it years ago. Sattler responds to Grant on the radio and confusedly and unwittingly speaks a distraction into it, luring the raptor's attention away from Grant. She must have been scared and confused, and she doesn't do a great job of creating a distraction, but it's effective enough. Perhaps a scared and pleading voice is more alluring to a hunter than what Muldoon would have done, which is, you know, yelling, dinner time, come and get it, right? (laughs) Uh, John Hammond, uh, he's staring upwards at the raptors in the ceiling, not speaking on page 350. Hammond wonders what's happened to Tim, why he stopped speaking into the radio. With the raptors looming over them, Hammond laments, Who could have imagined it would turn out this way? And in his defense, he retorts that he didn't want the park to fail. He takes a stab at Malcolm for saying, I told you so for hours. And he wonders what happened to Tim and to Grant, but specifically suggests that Tim, quote, seemed like such a responsible boy on page 151 and that in some way he's disappointed an 11-year-old isn't saving him and his park. Because it must be the 11-year-old who is being irresponsible, right, Hammond? Uh, Rubber Muldoon. Muldoon is sitting on the floor with his back against the wall. If you were trying to picture this scene, there you go. Dr. Alan Grant. Grant is at the rear door of the visitor center, but the doors are locked on page 351, and he has to run around front to get through the broken windows. But upstairs, he's locked out again, and he can hear the raptors in the hallway, and he needs a security card to go further. He reunites with Lex and Tim as they flee the raptors on page 353 by entering the Extractions Lab. Grant faces off against the raptors while instructing Gennaro to take the kids somewhere safe. Meanwhile, he has a plan to get rid of the raptors. Grant leads the raptors away from the kids and Gennaro into the hatchery on 354. This is his plan, to poison eggs and feed them to the raptors, thereby killing the animals and saving the kids. Grant tricks two of the raptors into eating the eggs, but an overturned table causes him to come up with a new plan on page 357. Using the radio in his pocket as a distraction, he is able to inject the third raptor with poison, which eventually dies, but not before it slashes Grant and almost kills him. He is struck between his shoulder blades, is bleeding and covered in crushed eggs, on page 358, but he did it. He saved Gennaro and the kids. Tim Murphy. Tim and Lex are in the nursery handling the infant Velociraptor, when apparently, because they hadn't closed the door behind them, the rest of the raptors pursuing them enter the nursery, too, on page 351. Tim tosses the infant Velociraptor to the adults, hoping to buy them some time to think, and then pulls Lex through a doorway. Tim can recognize their. N- this next room is the DNA extraction lab, and they run through a door at the back, which activates a flashing alarm and siren. On page three fifty two, he is left with Gennaro for safety. On three fifty three, Lex Murphy, she's tagging along with Tim through the nursery. On three fifty one, she is terrified, rightly, when the adult Velociraptors tear the infant apart. On three fifty two, she is placed in the custodianship of. Gennaro in three hundred fifty three, and once Grant has defeated the final raptor, Lex says, Wow. For three hundred fifty nine, perhaps saying what we're all thinking. Grant is a hero. But no exclamation mark of all the people. Donald Gennaro, Gennaro is tagging along with Grant as they're looking to find the kids and reboot the computer on for 353. Grant instructs Gennaro to take the kids somewhere safe, like the control room, and Gennaro asks a question What are you gonna do? But The door Gennaro ducks through with the kids has glass walls, so the Raptors will know where they are still, and has no exit, so they cannot escape on 354. Once Grant has defeated the final Raptor, Gennaro and the kids help Grant to his feet, and they rush off to the control room on 359. There is a dead guard. This corpse has a security card, which Grant grave robs off of him. I don't know if the security guard was armed or not, but um, if he were armed with anything, Uh, Grant did not take that too. Velociraptors, the baby velociraptor in the nursery chirps and squeaks on 351. It hops excitedly, looking around, its head moving quickly. When the adults enter the nursery, Tim tosses the infant at them, and we're left to wonder, will the adults take care of it? Nope. Two raptors fight over the baby as it squeals, blood splattering, in large drops on the floor. Holy cow. Uh, When facing off against Grant, the raptors wait until they're in a group before moving forward as a pack on 353. This makes Grant shiver, and this is the second time they're Their operations as a pack makes someone shiver. Last time it was Gennaro as they pursue Grant, they come forward without hesitation, sniffing the floor, repeatedly ducking their heads. The lead animal wipes its bloody jaws with its forearm on 354, and they duck to peer beneath the benches in the hatchery. The raptors eat eggs on 355. One of them licks their lips noisily on 356. Crichton describes instinctively chasing a moving object and licking its lips noisily. These are very feline qualities, though not expressly described as so. We're told the toxins should kill within seconds, but when the raptors ingest them, they take a while to die, so, Mal- so Muldoon's interpretation that they're hard to kill, possibly because of a distributed nervous system, is proving true. Once solitary, the raptor behaves differently. Slow, slow, patient, deliberate, without the swiftness as before when it was in a pack of 357. While looming over Grant, the raptor is described as having a hissing breath, pebbled skin, streaks of dried blood on its curved claw, and smells of a strong reptile odor. It jumps with frightening speed, and apparently, when it rears back, is tall enough to bang its head on the infrared lights above. That's pretty tall. Locality is the Visitor Center. Grant is at the rear door of the Visitor Center in 351, the same which he'd left 20 minutes earlier to head to the maintenance shed, and the front windows are all smashed, but the doors are all locked now that the generator is back on. The upper corridor is security card protected on 353 now that the power is back on. The nursery. This room is white with toys on the floor and the baby Velociraptor on 351. The DNA extraction laboratory, this is connected to the nursery on 351, and there is a deep green glow unique to this lab. There are rows of stereo microscopes, high resolution screens showing frozen giant black and white images of insects. At the back of the lab, another door which triggers an alarm, activating a shrill and intermittent siren and the lights to flash overhead. The biohazard sign is blue on 353, and there are supercomputers and screens still blinking endless sequences of computer deciphered code. The hatchery. Exiting from the DNA extraction lab, the the exit into the hatchery is labeled Two Laboratory with a blue biohazard sign. It's warm and silent inside beneath the infrared lights and long tables with rows of eggs and a low clinging mist with rockers on the tables clicking and whirring in a steady motion on 354. There's a glass-walled lab With ultraviolet light at the rear, equipped with delicate lab equipment, like glass reagents, beakers full of pipettes, and glass dishes, the air is humid. Remember, 100% humidity, a Jurassic atmosphere as described by Grant. Access to the poisons behind the hood is by a button under a cover on 355. The hood slides up to the ceiling. Behind it are glass shelves and rows of bottles marked with skulls and crossbones, Later, when the raptor pitches forward dying of the toxic poisons, it knocks over a table when, quote, dozens of eggs rolled everywhere across the floor on 357. We know that each table holds 150 eggs, so this is literally more than 10 dozen eggs, so I guess hundreds of eggs would have been inappropriate, but (laughs) there are more than 100 eggs all over the floor here. There is, quote, dark red gloom in the hatchery on 357, and only the toxin closet was ultraviolet. The rest is under an infrared lighting. All right, illusions and references. We have CCK55. This refers to <laughs> a chemical here. Cholecystokinin? Cholecystokinin? Whatever, however you pronounce that. Uh, peptid hormone of the gastrointestinal system responsible for stimulating digestion of fat and protein. It is previously called pancreozymin. Uh, I don't know what the 55 numeral refers to, um, but it's possibly a peptid fragment derived from the larger peptid hormone, whatever all that means. Tetra-alpha-secretin. Whatever this is also in some way refers to the secretion of gastric pepsin, apparently related to whatever CCK55 is supposed to be doing. There's thym 11 x 1612 I can find no reference to what this is, so these are three references sound like fancy sciency things, and they might be, but I can't find any viable reference to what they, they were referring to. Perhaps this has been developed by Wu to aid in the cloning process, I, which I like the sound of. I'd like to interpret this novel's unique products, poisons, and strange pieces of chemistry that have no known real-world correlation to the products that Dr. Wu developed to help bring the extracted paleo DNA to life. He's not given any special credit for doing this in the book, but um, but I'll give him credit for it. Sounds good to me. I think Wu, he is brilliant. I think that these could be enzymes or proteins or something that he has developed to aid in the, the cloning process. Stylistic techniques. We have uh, the use of italics. I didn't imagine I calculated it In italics, on page 350, says Malcolm. And here, the italics emphasize that this isn't a matter of opinion. This isn't biased in some way. It's math. It's a calculation. It's a fact. It's a good use of italics. They ate him! Italicized on 351. Emphasizes Lex, shocked that they didn't take care of the infant. Like, perhaps? Uh, We as readers are also shocked. Eating the baby is the opposite of what uh, we had hoped might be in store for that baby. The emphasis here is good at elevating the shocking nature of this turn of events. With Grant, in this chapter, the italics indicate alarm and emotion, but they're also indicative that these are his inner thoughts. He's not expressing these italicized thoughts verbally. Yes, on 354 is italicized. This is Grant's internal monologue, realizing that he's arrived exactly where he'd hoped to be, as well as he wanted to be. But he was uncertain. The italics emphasize his triumph. That's one. On page 356, thinks Grant mentally, tallying the score as he tries to match his life against the three raptors. That's two. On 357, he thinks twice, but again in his mind. And then later, that makes two, as he finally can tally the death of the second raptor, which deceived him for one time. It was looking right at him. On 356, is entirely italicized, indicated that there's much more meaning caught up in that idea that a raptor might be looking right at someone. That also means that your life is in peril, that you're scared, and that fight or flight is kicking in. Uh, it's also an inner monologue as well. The radio is italicized on 358 to be read as an insight or an inspiration, something that might be useful in saving Grant from the final Velociraptor. Talk, insists Grant to Ellie, who doesn't seem to understand the situation. Granted, there, there was no time to explain. We, uh, we have some colons being used. There were toys on the floor. Colon, a rolling yellow ball, a doll, a plastic rattle on 351. And here the colon presents a list of toys that are on the floor, which is a structurally correct use of a colon. It was where he wanted to be, in the hatchery, colon, beneath infrared lights, long tables, and rows of eggs, and a low clinging mist. On 354, again, we have a, a list of things that are being described. Granted it all again, colon, quietly reaching up for an egg, bringing it down, injecting it, and rolling it toward the raptors. On 355, and here the colon is presenting a list of actions or procedures. So the colons are all used quite appropriately in this uh, this moment. Ellipses! Here, they, the ellipses are used for the purpose of, of pausing. Quote, he looked around at the glass reagents, beakers full of pipettes, glass dishes, ellipsis, all delicate laboratory equipment, on 354. Uh, So here he is, he's just taking a pause, categorizing what it is he's seeing. Quote, he tried to open it, but there was no door, no handle, no way he could see ellipsis, on 354 as well. The four periods indicate that the ellipsis terminates this sentence, so this is a pause after Grant struggles to open the hood. Perhaps this is a pause in which he's searching for a new means to open the hood. Quote, Grant looked down to see what would happen, ellipsis, on 356. Cautiously, it looked at the foaming head, then moved down to the twitching neck, the heaving ribs, the legs, ellipsis. On 357, there was nowhere for him to hide. Nothing for him to do on elli- uh, ellipsis on 357. Here, the ellipses are all drawing out the moment, a dramatic pause rather than just a pause, a dramatic pause. Slowly, ellipsis. Slowly, ellipsis. He moved to the left, ellipsis. <laughs> so, there again, uh, dramatic moments, pauses. Uh, taking time, slowing things down. And here it's utilized for dramatic connectivity with the reader. Only a few molecules will kill instantaneously. Ellipsis on 354. Here the ellipsis here trails off, allowing us, the readers, to connect the dots that the poisons could be weaponized. Presumably Grant already had this plan, hence his great satisfaction in finding himself in the hatchery, and the italicized, yes, indicating that he is where he wanted to be. So the ellipsis is for you and I, dear readers, to connect the dots. So we are here to understand that the the, the the poisons that he's finding, he's going to be able to use them. We, we had to connect those dots. The ellipsis is there for us. Ellie's dialogue contains pauses indicating her uncertainty over the radio. Ellipsis. Alan? Alan. Ellipsis. Please. Ellipsis. Alan, listen to me. Ellipsis. Alan? So she's asking questions that go unanswered, but these are not rhetorical questions. They're just calls going unanswered. M-dashes are used quite a bit uh, in in this chapter as interruptions. No doubt about it, the little thing was worked up and M-dash. On 351, here the M-dash is an interruption again as the raptors enter the nursery through a door that was ajar. He had to find a door, a way to get out, M-dash. Again on 351. Is Tim looking for an escape? But they're interrupted by the horrible scream of the infant velociraptor being torn apart. Another interruption. This one is more horrifying than the previous. But M-dash. On 353, Grant looked up, and the raptor had spotted him on 357. And then the M-dash is used as parentheses. Tim found a door, M-dash. It was locked, M-dash, and went through it, pulling Lex after him. The M-dashes here serve as an informal bracket, as this statement, that the door is unlocked, is to be read in parallel with the action. Running down the corridor, Tim was plunged into darkness, M-dash, then light again, M-dash, then darkness, on 352 and 353. So here it's being used as a quick cut right? Uh, Slash, 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 just like you might see in a movie. Um, This is similar to the interruption to be read as if the action were progressing with startling speed, the next action coming fast. Quote, One of the animals heard the sound, dash, ducked down, dash, saw it coming, dash, and instinctively chased the moving object, gliding swiftly among the tables to intercept the egg as it rolled, on 356. And it happens again. Grant reached up for another egg, dash, and saw that the other raptors in the room were frozen in mid-action, on 356. Here, a new observation surprises our hero, giving him one more thing to think about, (laughs) while executing his plan. We have exclamations, Timmy! Exclamation mark on 351 exclaims Lex as Tim is attacked by a baby velociraptor. Damn! On 355, as Grant's first shot at administering a poisoned egg to the velociraptor falls short, he's disappointed. What was the matter with her? On 358, is Grant being frustrated with Ellie, who's not being noisy enough over the radio? For what is worth, Crichton is very conservative with exclamation marks in this chapter where the stakes are life and death, and everything is a shock. That the only time that Grant is associated with an exclamation mark is when he's frustrated with Sattler is actually kind of astonishing. What this does indicate, and perhaps a lesson we can all learn from, is that if you're already using italics or an underscore or a bold font, etc., to impress meaning, there's no need for further punctuation like an exclamation. Just use one technique. If you put them all in at once, you look like some amateur poster for a garage sale. Capitalization. He went upstairs but came to the glass panel marked Closed Area, in capitals, and the door was locked on 351, and the closed areas in caps because it's signage, which Crichton is consistently employed to represent when you're reading a sign, and therefore not dialogue or narrative. To Laboratory is also capitalized on 354, and Caution Biogenetic Toxins A4 Precautions Required on 354, Are, are these are all more signs, uh, capitalized consistently with the style of this novel. Suspense. Crichton does an excellent job creating suspense. When Grant goes to find the toxins to poison the eggs, he's initially frustrated. He cannot find out how to open the hood to gain access to the toxins, which ruins his plan. What's he going to do? But he gets in. Phew. But not without some suspense first. Then, when he goes to feed the first raptor a poisoned egg, the raptor ignores it, as if it weren't going to eat them after all, ruining his plan. But then he rolls a second egg, and it does eat the eggs. Phew. But not before. There's some more suspense. Then the second raptor is bit in the neck. Helping Grant reach his goal of killing all raptors, but it doesn't die and instead survives, ruining Grant's plan. But it eats another poisoned egg and it kills itself. Phew, but not without some suspense first. And that second raptor knocks over a table of eggs. There are too many eggs to get the final raptor to comply, ruining Grant's eat this specifically poisoned egg plan. Lots of suspense. Almost every action meets some delay or frustration before the hero can move forward. Everything comes as a challenge, which continues to keep the reader on alert at a level of heightened tension. Nothing comes easy for our heroes, so this is really well put together drama and tension. The final raptor's attack on Grant has at least four tricks in it, extending the suspense as well. Ellie doesn't initially respond to Grant's instructions. He doesn't throw the radio quite far away enough. The raptor kicks and just misses him, but he's slashed between the shoulder blades, and the raptor kicks and hits the radio instead of him. And with his back against the wall, literally, the third and final unavoidable kick is never delivered. As finally the poison takes and he doesn't die. (laughs) It's amazing. Literary techniques. We have a metaphor. Running down the corridor, Tim was plunged into darkness, then light again, then darkness. On 352 and 353. This might be like the third time this cliche of being plunged into darkness has come up. It was and is effective imagery to the point that it is a cliché. Do you get credit for effective imagery when you use the same one over and over? Ah, whatever. Uh, Quote, The raptor looked down in surprise at this new gift on 355, and this metaphor is intended to be read from the perspective of the velociraptor. She or he sees that this is a pleasant surprise, one which has been given to him or her without effort. Quote, the screams of the dying raptor filled the room on 357. It's a bit of a cliche, representing that a noise is physically filling a room, as if it were a liquid or a bunch of sand or or something. But the imagery works so well, because we can definitely imagine how loud the screams are. We have some similes. Quote, Ian Malcolm drew each breath as if it might be his last on 350. And this is a good simile, as it suggests that he's very close to death, and therefore makes us feel the impending dread of the raptors reaching him. Quote, but he rolled this one fast, like a bowling ball. And here the simile sort of implies that the ball is rolling fast, fast like a bowling ball. But really the ball is rolling fast and rolling and likely also launched like it were a bowling ball. I doubt that it rolled like a bowling ball because it's not a sphere. It's more like a football, which bounces around. Quote, coils of intestine fell out like fat snakes. Here, the intestines look like fat snakes, but they are not falling like fat snakes. Snakes are not generally known for their falling, so the imagery is relying on us relating the shape and perhaps posture of a snake to resemble the coiled intestines, but not the snake's qualities of falling. So Creighton has written the simile very roughly, perhaps. The Perhaps, quote, the coils fell out looking like fat snakes, or the fat snakes of intestines fell out would work better. I think there are a few instances in this novel where a sentence isn't quite written correctly nonetheless. Irony, the leathery reptile skin touched Tim's face. The claws tore his shirt and Tim fell onto his back, shrieking in fright on 351. Holy smokes! Tim's getting mauled by a velociraptor. Timmy! Yells Lex. Quote, the baby velociraptor perched on his shoulder, chirping and squeaking. Oh. This is a huge misdirect by Crichton, and it isn't dramatic irony, which is when the readers know something the character doesn't, but in this case, it's just ironic. What's being said isn't representative of what's being meant. We are deceived, intentionally, for creative impact. In this case, Crichton makes it appear that Tim is being mauled by the velociraptors that were hunting them, but in fact, it's just a baby from the tour yesterday. But it got us, as readers. We were duped. (laughs) Analogy, Malcolm makes a variety of allusions to describe in what way Hammond has failed to demonstrate humility before nature, and rather, instead, has attempted to control it. And the only way Jurassic Park is is successful is if they have control. Analogy 1. The hunter in the rainforest seeking food for his family doesn't control nature. He imagines that nature is beyond him, beyond his understanding, beyond his control. He prays to nature, to the fertility of the forest that provides for him, and he prays for its mercy, because he cannot control it on 350. The second analogy. You make a boat, but you cannot control the ocean. The third analogy, you make an airplane, but you cannot control the air. These analogies serve to illustrate that Jurassic Park's failure has been in that it has believed that it can control nature, but life finds a way. We're told in 159, as Malcolm argued earlier and has always argued. And it's uh, it's important to think that uh, we have Malcolm giving analogies almost like parables. They're not quite parables. The lessons aren't being learned, but he's giving examples. They're half parables. How about that? <laughs> uh, discussions. Uh, We've got a neat one here, the Sword of Damocles. The the raptors are gnawing through the bars and will enter the room in mere minutes, and Hammond looks up and laments, who could have imagined it would turn out this way on 350? And the classical depiction of fate dropping upon characters from above is the Sword of Damocles, which is an allusion to the imminent and ever-present peril faced by those in positions of power. This allusion is strengthened by Hammond's position of power and the imminent and presently ever-present peril he and his gang are in. That the is dangling from above further strengthens this interpretation. This is, quote, more generally used to, quote, denote the sense of foreboding engendered by a precarious situation, especially one in which on the onset of tragedy is restrained only by a delicate trigger or chance, says Wikipedia. We can see that all the components of employing this motif exists here. Is Crichton intentionally making a specific allusion, or is he just recreated a cliched trope of having the fate of all his heroes dangling by a thread? I'll wager it's the latter, but that doesn't mean that it's not rooted heavily in the former. Now, in the Damocles story, Damocles has to perform a career's worth of unsavory and dastardly acts to not only remain in power, but to thwart attempts to overthrow his rule. And the consequences of these actions put his leadership and life in constant peril, as vengeance continuously looms over him, I think. So this isn't a classical allusion to the sword of Damocles, but rather the cliched trope common in Pulp Fiction, where our heroes' fates are hanging by a thread. Show, don't tell. The baby velociraptor in the nursery hops excitedly, looking around, its head moving quickly on 351. Crichton then says, quote, it's definitely worked up about something. But he essays to show us that it's worked up before he says it. And what's it worked up about? Obviously, the adult raptor is entering the nursery. But then it's, quote, clearly agitated, said plainly by Crichton. So first he shows, and then he tells, instead of show, don't tell. You're supposed to show, not tell. Uh, Crichton trope. So, it's finally, as the Raptors enter the nursery through a door that Tim and Lex hadn't let close behind them, that doors are a consistent trope that Crichton has relied upon in this novel. The security systems, which controlled all the security card-operated doors, cut out whenever main power was lost, but did not come back on with auxiliary power. The security program only ran with main power, we're told on 141, in episode 28, Control. So we got all kinds of different doors Uh, one when Arnold goes to restart the power in the generator shed he needs light so he has to leave a door ajar recall and the Raptors got through that door just fine Uh, behind the waterfall Grant goes through that password protected door uh, straining the kids against a Tyrannosaur and then it's locked (laughs) but then it pops open when the power goes out. Uh, The kids had trouble locking one of the raptors into the freezer. That was an interesting part with the door. Uh, Now that the generators are back on, and their Krant can't get through the rear doors, and the kids need security cards to enter through different rooms, but they don't close the doors behind them, and the raptors come right through the doors. Uh, Doors are just an agent of chaos in this novel. (laughs) Tim found a door. It was unlocked. It went through, pulling Lex after him. Phew, this door isn't needed to excite drama, I guess. Nonetheless, the raptors get through as well. So just Crichton tropes. He, he likes these doors. Entryways are, are challenging for people, easy for dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to call this next part. Maybe it's narrative juxtaposition. So as Tim and Lex flee through the DNA extraction lab... Either Tim recalls or Crichton just includes in the narrative a recap of how the viable cloning material was produced on 351. Quote, the flies and gnats that had bitten dinosaurs millions of years ago, sucking the blood that now had been used to recreate dinosaurs in the park. It's a quick conclusion, but it harkens back to the tour. It harkens back to the origins of these velociraptors, which are hunting them, and it evokes some imagery of blood sucking and exsanguination. Crichton adds it, perhaps to characterize the laboratory, perhaps it's included to juxtapose how far we've come since yesterday on the tour, wondrously ambling through these computer screens and facilities versus now fleeing for our lives against these technologies we know nothing about. This little inclusion's juxtaposition proves Malcolm's point, that humility before nature, the idea that you might control nature, or life leads to tragedy, that you may only hope for nature's mercy, perhaps even pray for, but you cannot control it. It is beyond your control, It is out of control, and that is symbolized by the raptors. They represent uncontrollable, unknowable nature. Grant steps in, the one with the most connectivity to nature, to these animals as they may have been in their own time, and he relies upon his lifetime of dedication to nature, being an outdoorsman, and his connection to nature to survive and save everyone's lives. Malcolm's warning, Grant's actions, they're two sides of the same coin in a way, whereas Hammond is a different coin, and he is the villain. (laughs) Uh, The dinosaurs. Grant weaponizes his knowledge of dinosaurs to battle the velociraptors in the hatchery. We're told, quote, Velociraptors were small, carnivorous dinosaurs like oviraptors and dromaeosaurs, animals that were long thought to steal eggs, just as certain modern birds ate the eggs of other birds. Grant had always assumed that velociraptors would eat dinosaur eggs if they could. On 355. When originally discovered, it was believed the oviraptor was stealing protoceratops eggs, and thus it was named oviraptor, which means egg thief ova, and a raptor come together like that. However, many years later, as scientific instruments became more powerful and poignant, it was discovered that the eggs that ova-raptor was stealing were, in fact, her own damned eggs. She was brooding over them, not stealing or eating them. She was on her nest. So Grant's armed with old science. And in the vein of Jurassic Park, and it had been consistent for the dinosaurs to behave in ways that the top scientists didn't expect. But Grant makes out okay with this old science. Nonetheless, uh, that part... This element of, of of raptors stealing eggs is an outdated idea, but it was a contemporary idea of uh, 1980s, and therefore it's that's why it's in here. I'm just saying presently it's not acceptable. Not as accepted, anyhow. Timeline. We know that Grant and the kids arrived at the visitor center around 10.15 a.m. on page 317, and now it is 20 minutes later, according to page 351, making it presently 10.35. They got 25 minutes to get the power on and call that ship as the clock ticks down. But recall, I think Malcolm said two chapters ago they only had about three minutes before the raptors not through the bars. So I don't know how that timeline's working out. Maybe his time math isn't as good as his, uh, as his uh, chaos theory math. Doing the math! By the end of this chapter, Grant has killed the three raptors in the hatchery. There's one locked in the kitchen freezer, one exploded by Muldoon, and one presumably still in the maintenance shed basement. That's three plus one plus one plus one. That equals seven. So there should uh, should still be one of those eight bad ones out there somewhere. And possibly the one in the maintenance shed could conceivably get out, I guess. But I don't know about that. But uh, let's look more closely at the hatchery. This is interesting math. We were told earlier that there are 150 eggs per table when the tour first visits the hatchery on page 106. And in this chapter, we're told that the eggs are the size of a football on page 355, or at least the shape of a football. I think that means the same thing. So how big is a table that fits 150 footballs? A football is 11 inches long with a circumference of 28 inches. That makes its diameter about nine inches. Now, picture an egg It sits upright in a nest, not on its side. So to calculate how much area is required to fit 150 eggs, one should take the egg's diameter squared for the minimum limit of space required for a single egg, like an egg carton, right? How much space is an egg carton to fit 12 eggs? Okay, so if the width is nine inches, the egg's diameter, as calculated down from the football's 28 inch circumference, then nine inches squared is 81 square inches. 81 square inches for 150 eggs on a table is 12,150 square inches. And in feet, that equates to 1,010 square feet. But let's say just 1,000 square feet for simplicity. Believe me, the additional 10 square feet aren't going to make much of a difference here. Now, if this is a table, presumably I want to be able to reach what's at the center of the table, which would make this table at its humanly largest limits only about 6 feet wide at the most. If it's only six feet wide, for it to have an area of 1,000 square feet, this table needs to be 166 feet long, which is 50 meters, or half a football field, approximately. So, inside the hatchery are tables as long as a half the length of a football field, and there are multiple tables. So for anything to knock over a 1,000-square-foot table, which is weighed down by 150 eggs, the nests and whatever else equipment is on this thing would require a tremendous amount of force. I'm just saying. But a raptor did it. Now, apparently there is automated equipment that rotates and handles the eggs, so the center needn't necessarily be a humanly accessible width. So that permits that the width of the tables can possibly be much greater. But to put multiple 1,000 square foot tables in one room, consider that a mansion is about 5,000 square feet and above. So this room is tremendously large. I, for a period of time, thought that these tables might be like a pan rack. These are what caterers use to transport like 20 baking sheets at once, like a dolly for cooked food. They're sort of like condominiums for your walk-in fridge. But Crichton is not describing PANRAX. The math doesn't work. And remember, all these tables are here filled with eggs for a 0.4% yield we were told on 106. At .4% yield, 150 of these eggs will hatch .6 viable dinosaurs. It takes two tables of eggs to statistically yield a single dinosaur. So when we were on the tour and visited the hatchery for the first time, recall it was said, quote, Tim faced a vast open room bathed in deep infrared light. The eggs lay on long tables, their pale outlines obscured by the hissing low mist that covered the tables on 106. How vast and long the tables are feels a little underrepresentative now, don't you think? Crazy. Here's a fun observation. I'm not sure what else to call this. The dinosaur egg Grant uses to poison the velociraptors are from the hatchery on 355. The nearest table has a large football-sized egg, which is cream-colored with faint pink speckling. Now, these eggs are also fake plastic eggshells developed by the company that InGen purchased called Millipore Plastics from Nashville, Tennessee. That's beside the point. Once the egg is injected with a toxin, it changes to a glowing blue color. So the toxin glows and apparently changes what color the, the ultraviolet lights fluoresce it back to the naked eye to see. So that's kind of fun. I like the idea that he would inject these eggs and then they glow a different color. I think that's fun. Park management. We have a dead guard. The corpse had a security card which Grant grave robs off of him. Was the man armed? He was a guard, possibly equipped with some sort of person or dinosaur deterrent again I don't think these security guards are keeping people remember there's barely 20 people on the private island all of which are employed or invited there from going up into the labs that are security card protected they're here because the raptors got loose before and they're sure to get loose again so here's a security guard that's maybe armed I don't know it would be nice to know if he had some sort of deterrent Uh, Blinking screens in the Extractions Lab, all the supercomputers are still running, and their screens, quote, blinked endless sequences of computer deciphered code on 353. What you'll recall is I'm looking at the lengthy DNA sequences. I only mention this because all the computers and all the power turned off while everything was off. Presumably, these gene sequencers would need to be restarted, the programs reopened, and the processes relaunched. Unless these computers turn themselves on, open their own programs, and get to work entirely autonomously. But nothing else in the park does. Everything else in the park has to be manually rebooted. I guess the security guards are working again. So security guards and gene sequencers, these turn on with the power um, automatically, but nothing else does. Uh, The God Complex. Through the novel, chiefly through the examination of hubris, we've uncovered that one must perform their harmful action in the face of warnings that their actions are harmful, yet they do it anyhow out of great pride. This warning is often delivered by God... And in this novel, the warnings are delivered by Malcolm. Now, I believe Malcolm is usurping righteous power away from Hammond. To this point, the god on this island has been Hammond. But Malcolm here, in this moment, I'm realizing it, is embracing the Jesus mythos. He's begun speaking in parables, or at least in analogies. And if we look back, he always spoke in some analogy to make his point. He's warned against taking nature for granted. He's shown mankind, or the western world anyhow, the error of their ways. The example of lack of humility before nature that's in this novel is captured here very well quote man prays because he doesn't control nature he's at the mercy of it on 350 so i think that here this jesus mythos and the god complex is say, is is being yeah usurped away from hammond and embodied into into malcolm and as we know malcolm is resurrected yeah, before the next novel uh, rules of Three. Stories, especially in the Western world, are built around the Rule of Three. This is a principle that a trio implies meaning more effectively and pleasing in storytelling than other quantities. Having three entities combines both brevity and rhythm with having the smallest amount of information to create a pattern. You get the Three Little Pigs, Three Billy Goats, Gruff, Goldilocks, and the Three Bears, and the Three Rabbis who walk into a bar. The Rule of Three. Same here. We've got Three Raptors, and Crichton uses this to subvert expectations. Grant's plan to poison the eggs is effective, but then the third raptor disrupts the rhythm and makes us as readers uncomfortable raising the tension. Then the third raptor strikes once, hitting Grant. Strikes a second time, spattering the radio. And the final strike, it's cocked and loaded, but the Velociraptor dies instead of killing Grant. I'm sure the rule of three is all over this book, but here's one in this chapter that's used twice, and so it's a good example. All right, as we sign off today, I want to say thank you to my special guest today, Dr. Jing May O'Connor. Thank you. I wanna sign up today thanking you for joining me. If you wanna read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, you can or be a guest on the show, you can chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park. You can do that by connecting with me. I'm at Ryan Rogers at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. This is episode 56, we're getting up to 65, so we're within the we're in the last ten here. If you wanna if you would like to chime in. Now's the time. Jurassic Park Cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, the Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the Worst of Them All, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com, or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers, or me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park Cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too until next time